In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen. Heavenly Father, we invite you into this space and ask you to send your Holy Spirit upon us to bind us to our Lord Jesus Christ, that every thought, word, and work of ours may begin with you and through you be happily completed through Christ our Lord. Amen. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen. Welcome to our first night of Theology of the Body. And uh, so it's good to have people in the room and people on Zoom. Um, So once I turn my slideshow on, I'm going to minimize. So I'm not going to see any of your faces if you're on Zoom. So if you have questions and you're on the computer, just write them in the chat. And I will look at them at the end. And I'll also be able to print them out and address them at the next and if you're in the room, I'll say, does anybody have questions? And everybody will look at the floor. <laughs> it's usually what happens, um, but that's okay. <laughs> All right, so I'm going to pull up my slideshow. And uh... good. Yeah, I'll minimize that. <clears throat> okay, so, um, so just a couple of introductory things. So Teaching Theology of the Body is my favorite thing. Um, And the first time I did it, I was a deacon and I was at the cathedral. And when you're a deacon and a transitional deacon, you have nothing to do for the summer. And so I basically went to the pastor and I said, hey, I want to teach this Theology of the Body class. Um, So I'd actually given a homily and somebody came up and commented to me that that was a really good Theology of the Body homily. And I didn't really realize that's what I was doing. Um, and so I spent that whole summer reading this entire book and all of the Wednesday audiences in here. And I gave a class kind of every week. Um, and then when I taught at Pius as a young priest, I taught theology of the body to high school seniors. And then as most of you know, I studied at the John Paul II Institute in Rome from 2009 to 2013. And, um, and then when I came back, I did a course for 12 weeks in 2014. Um, and so it's about time to update that. And uh, also because I've lost like half of my body since then. So um, I'm trying to get rid of all my fat YouTube videos. And, uh, <laughs> and so, so, so this will be an opportunity to do that. So I titled the course... Um, this time, Theology of the Body, Human Love and the Divine Plan, a teaching for our times. And, and the reason that I'd say that is, is that most of the difficult moral issues that we face in our culture, they're really issues about what it means to be a human person. And, and that's the core question that, that rests in most of our hearts is like, what does it mean to really be human? And what does it mean to be created in the image of God who is love? And, and more than that, maybe, what does it mean to experience that? And, and so if I go to this quote, which is my favorite John Paul II quote, he says, man cannot live without love. He remains a being that is incomprehensible for himself. His life is senseless if love is not revealed to him. If he does not encounter love, if he does not experience it and make it his own, if he does not participate intimately in it. And, and so love is the deepest longing of all of our hearts. And, and John Paul II quotes himself over and over and over and over and over again. If you read all of his writings, in almost every document, he goes back to this quote at some point. And, and the fact that everything has to be rooted in the fact that we're created in the image of God, who is love, we're created for love. And that love is the deepest longing of our hearts. And so the theology of the body is a deeper reflection on that kind of context. The first Wednesday audience was given on the 5th of September, 1979. And so Wednesday audiences are in Rome, the Pope on Wednesdays, he has a catechesis that he gives and usually pilgrims come and they would all come to the Casa Santa Maria and you can get tickets and go and see the Pope. And he gives some kind of a teaching. And so starting in 1979, John Paul II started giving this teaching, which ended up being collected into this entire catechesis, which is like really long. 
And, uh, and so if you want a book and some people asked me if I was going to have a textbook, really everything's coming out of this book, man and woman, he created them, which is a collection of all the Wednesday audiences. And in the midst of giving those audiences, which went on for about five years, he makes reference to the upcoming synod of bishops that would study the topic, the role of the Christian family. So there's another document John Paul II wrote called The Role of the Christian Family in the Modern World. And, and so as he was starting this reflection on the theology of the body, it was to prepare for that synod of bishops. Since the time the audiences were published, we've seen lots of things. So I remember when John Paul II was like elected Pope, kind of, I was about four years old. Um, some of you might remember more vividly than I do. I grew up in Michigan, just outside of Detroit and Detroit has a lot of Polish people. And so I remember there was sort of this documentary series on the local television on the Polish Pope. And, um, and then he was the Pope for, you know, most of my life growing up all the way until I was ordained a deacon. And then Pope Benedict XVI was elected. And so really in John Paul II's pontificate, we could say that he spent his time teaching us what it means to be human. And, and from a philosophical lens, reflected deeply on the human person. And then Pope Benedict XVI, his whole pontificate is framed around these three encyclical letters, which are the, on the theological virtues. So the first thing that Pope Benedict did when he became Pope was write Deus Caritas Est, which is a document called God is Love. And then he wrote a document called Space Salve, the hope that saves, and then the light of faith. And, and so what happens in the writings of Pope Benedict is there's a deeper reflection on being created in the image of God. And in kind of this movement from the fact that God is love and that we're created out of love and that the first movement is God's love for us, which leads to hope and hope enables us to make the act of faith. And at the end of Pope Benedict XVI's pontificate, he called for a synod on the new evangelization. And so this was at the end of my time in Rome. And there were bishops that came from all over the world for the synod on the new evangelization. And to really look at this question of like, how do we spread the gospel more effectively in the world? And, um, and then that sort of the synod came and, got and went. And then as soon as the synod was over, he resigned and Pope Francis was elected. And the first thing Pope Francis writes is Evangelii Gaudium, which is the document on evangelization, the joy of the gospel. And then he called for another synod on the family and wrote Amoris Laetitia. And, and so there's this kind of movement that's happened from John Paul II's teaching to a deeper reflection, theological reflection on love, to a greater pastoral emphasis in spreading the faith and and that's all like landing in the midst of the pastoral challenges that we have today and and again the pastoral challenges most of them revolve around what it means to be a human person since i came back from rome and since evangelii gaudium came out like same-sex marriage was made like the law of the state um, there's lots of gender confusion and, and sort of gender bending ideology. There's other unwanted compulsive sexual behaviors. There's more broken families. There's more loneliness. There's like probably just as many divorces now or troubled marriages now as there were before. And so, so there's a need, a continued need to step back into reflecting on like, how did God create us to be from the beginning? And, and a need to proclaim the truth in love. And so, so again, the theology of the body is a deeper reflection on what it means to be a human being created in the image of God. And it was written in order to fill out the more profound explanation for the church's teaching on human life written by Paul VI. So when John Paul II wrote all of these audiences and prepared all of these audiences, he really did it to give a deeper explanation for what's contained in this document, which is a lot smaller. 
So Humanae Vitae was published by Paul VI, which is the, his clarification about human life and really the church is teaching that every instance of the marital act must be open to both union and procreation. And so, so the main issue of the time was the issue of contraception. And the church wrote like this document in order to clarify that, which you can see is like kind of short. And then John Paul II writes all of this in order to explain what's in this little short document. But in our own time, the same teaching that John Paul II gave gives us a lens to more effectively proclaim the truth and love about all of the other issues and every issue involving marriage, family, and human sexuality. And, and really like all of the confusion just on a very basic level about what it means to be in relationship with people. You know, and when I talk to young people today, like a lot of times, like the, the, the struggle in their heart is, is knowing how to be in relationship and like knowing how to have a conversation or knowing how to like have a good friendship. Some of the most popular talks at focus conferences are just on friendship and how to establish a friendship. And, and maybe that's because of technology. Maybe it's because of attachment issues. Maybe it's because like there's just been such a family breakdown or there's so many opportunities to, to not live. But all of it is an invitation to go back and reflect more deeply on, on how we were created to live and how we were, cre were created to love from the beginning. And so the theology of the body provides a lens through which we can balance fidelity to the church's teaching and care for those who struggle to live in accord with it. And, and that's not another struggle that we have in the church today is, is how do we talk about those kinds of issues? And, and I've seen young people who leave the church because they disagree with the church's teaching in that area of marriage, family, and human sexuality. And, and how do we like, how do we respond to that? <clears throat> because there can be a tendency to, to sort of respond from this position that says, well, this is what the church teaches and you need to be obedient to that and you just need to do it. And, and it seems that that's not been the most efficacious or the most effective. And then there can be this other temptation to, to just sort of say, well, we should really change the teaching of the church. You know, and that's also not very efficacious. And it's really hard to hold those things in balance. And Amoris Laetitia 291 actually talks about holding these two things in balance. It says, although she constantly holds up the call to perfection and asks for a fuller response to God, the church must accompany with attention and care the weakest of her children who show signs of a wounded and troubled love by restoring in them hope and confidence like the beacon of a lighthouse in a port or a torch carried among the people to enlighten those who have lost their way or who are in the midst of a storm. And, and so it holds together these two things that one, that the church has to constantly hold up the call to perfection and ask for a fuller response to God. So we're always gonna teach the fullness of the truth. We're always going to call people to more. We're always going to like call people to holiness. But at the same time, we have to accompany with attention and care the weakest of our children who show signs of a wounded and troubled love, you know, which means we have to learn how to accompany with attention and care, like people whose experience doesn't line up with the church's teaching or people who grew up in a divorced family going from mom's house, dad's house, mom's house, dad's house, different roles, different house, or people who have suffered from abuse or people who have suffered from neglect. <clears throat> And, and so there's a need to, to do both things. And I really like that image of a lighthouse because it, it sort of provides this image of like there's on the one hand, there's this lighthouse, which is like the truth that shines brightly. But oftentimes the experience in the modern world is much like my own experience was when I was studying in Rome where I went and I studied the theology of marriage and family life. And, and I come from a family where, you know, my mother died when I was very young. Both my parents were married and divorced when they married each other. 
then my dad remarried again. And then my dad and my stepmom got divorced. And, and so my family is like, not like the family that we learn about in a textbook. And, and I remember sitting there and the, and the teachers, you know, talking about like all the like fatherhood and motherhood and sonship and daughterhood and joy. And like, like the fullness of the church's teaching is like crashing in. And that lighthouse, the light from the lighthouse was just illuminating all of the places in my own heart where I didn't measure up. And I remember just being really agitated in that experience. And I think that is like the experience a lot that a lot of people have today is that like we can proclaim the gospel in such a way that it just like illuminates. Oh, like I don't experience that. And, and I remember going to my like theologian teacher and, and expressing this to him and basically saying, you know, like, this is the context I come from, and this is the family I come from, and my family is not anything like what you're talking about in class, and, and it's really causing a lot of agitation for me, and, uh, and his response was sort of, um, and I know he was, he was trying, but his response was like, well, remember Mary's your new mom, and St. Joseph's your new dad, and pray the rosary, and have a good day, <laughs> and I'm like, well, I, like, somebody needs to teach me how to live, <laughs> And, and it's kind of this, this response of the theologian whose job, it's his job to hold up the call to perfection and ask for a fuller response to God. It's his job to be the light, the beacon of a lighthouse and a port. What I needed was like somebody to do accompaniment, like a pastor, mentor, evangelizer, which is really somebody who sort of lights his torch off of that lighthouse and goes to find that lost person, but then to walk them back towards the light. Right? And to teach them how to live and, and to, sh- to kind of mentor in, in the human experience or in the art of being human. And, and when these two dynamisms are unbalanced, <clears throat> we, can, we end up in error. So when we have like theology without accompaniment, it ends up in Pelagianism. And Pelagianism is an error that says, I can save myself by myself. Like, I don't need God's grace. I just like my own virtues can save me. And it sort of sounds like this. Just decide to believe what the church teaches. And then the inability to live in accordance with the moral law is interpreted as an act of willful disobedience. And it can be motivated by fear of scandal, fear of vulnerability, or fear of relationship. And, and, I, and I've seen that a lot where, you know, we kind of can shun a family member or something like that, or people don't want to talk to a family member because they don't want to seem like they're approving of their behaviors that aren't in accord with the church's teaching. And, but we just end up like in this place of mm, it's motivated by this idea that you can just choose to be different. You can also end up with accompaniment without theology, which ends up in the neo-Pelagianism of fragility, which is one of my favorite terms. It basically means that it's when people say things like the church's teaching is so hard to live that we should just like lower the standard or people are so wounded, it's impossible for them to live what the church teaches. And so we just need to change the standard. And, and that... And it sounds like this, a person is so wounded, they're incapable of living according to the moral law. Therefore, we won't teach or enforce it. And that also can, that's mostly motivated by fear of losing relationships. And, and there can be a timidity in, in proclaiming what we believe because, um, because I'm afraid that like, I'm going to upset somebody, they're going to leave. I mean, I have these insecurities myself. Um, I experienced them much differently as a pastor than before I was a pastor, to be honest, like to be sh- sh- truly honest, because like when you're a pastor of a parish that's as small as ours, you, you know who's not there on Sunday. And then I'm always like, oh my gosh, what did I do? <laughs> and, uh, and, and, and because you just know, because everybody sits in the same pew. Um, <laughs> and then new people come and they're like, why are you in my pew? <laughs> and, uh, and so, so, so the goal is that we're integrated and that we learn, right, to, to light our torch off of that truth and then to go find that person where they're at and then walk them towards the truth. And the theology of the body is a lens that helps us to do that. So whenever I go and I give conferences, 
I'm like, they're always, I get asked to give a lot of conferences on difficult moral issues, but really what I'm giving a conference on is, is like how to use the theology of the body as a lens to bring integration between these two things. And so in the first Wednesday audience on all these slides, I have a date at the top and that's the date that John Paul II gave this talk. And so it begins with Matthew chapter 19. And so in Matthew chapter 19, Jesus goes to the Pharisees and he has this conversation with them. It says, some Pharisees approached him and tested him saying, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any cause, whatever? Jesus said in reply, have you not read that from the beginning, the creator made them male and female and said, for this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, no human being must separate. They said to him, why then did Moses command that the man give the woman a bill of divorce and dismiss her? He said to them, because of the hardness of your hearts, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives. But from the beginning, it was not so. I say to you, whoever divorces his wife, unless the marriage is unlawful and marries another commits adultery. And, and so the, the Pharisees asked this question, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any cause? And, and our Lord doesn't accept the discussion on the level on which his interlocutors try to introduce it. In a sense, he doesn't improve the dimension they tried to give the problem. So our Lord doesn't actually answer it directly. He instead says, don't you know that in the beginning, God created them male and female. And for this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife and the two shall be one flesh. And so he points back to the beginning in answering their question, because really what he's saying is you're asking the wrong question. The real question is, what does it mean to be human? And, and what does it mean that God created us in his image and in his likeness? And, and so, cause otherwise we end up in this kind of, argumentation or like splitting hairs or casuistry or like in the modern world, like canon law things. And, and, and it's not going to the core, right? Because the core is like from the beginning, it was not so. And so we have to go back to the beginning and say, okay, like what was God's plan from the beginning? And that's the same answer that we can give to so many of the cultural questions that we face today is let's go back to the beginning and, and, and what does it really mean to be human? So the beginning signifies what Genesis speaks about. And that phrase, let man not separate is decisive. So in light of this word of Christ, Genesis 2.24 states the principle of the unity and indissolubility of marriage as the very content of the word of God expressed in the most ancient revelation. And, and so when he says, what God has joined together, let man not separate, it's, it's decisive. And that's him being that beacon of a lighthouse at a port. <clears throat> but where he's inviting them to walk with him is in pointing back to what happened in Genesis. And so John Paul II says his goal, right, is to accompany from afar the work in preparation for that synod on the family. However, not however, by directly touching the topic, but by turning attention to the deep roots from which the topic, topic springs. And so, so even in talking about like the synod on the family, what he wants to do is go back deeper into a reflection on what it means to be human. The Wednesday audiences are divided into like sections of salvation history. And so, so this, this first five or six weeks, we'll probably spend most of our time in this section called original man and into historical man, which basically is this time in the beginning from creation to the fall. And then there's another section of the audiences where he talks about the effects of sin and distortion and how sin affects our life, how sin causes a split between body and spirit how sin alienates us from ourselves and from others and, and what that's like for us. And then it moves into redemption and living redeemed life in Christ. 
and how our Lord came into the world to restore us to what was intended from the beginning. And then there's a section called Eschatological Man, which is a reflection on what it will mean to live and to love in heaven. And because we always say that we believe in the resurrection of the body. And, and so what, what are we destined for? Right? What are we destined for? So again, in Matthew 19, 4, Jesus says, have you not read that from the beginning, the creator made them male and female, <clears throat> which refers back to Genesis 1, 1 to 2, 4 in this, this account of creation in the beginning of the Bible. Then he says, this is why a man leaves his father and mother and is joined to his wife, which refers to Genesis 2, 24 in the second story of creation where God creates Adam and Eve separately. And so these two stories of creation, he highlights that Genesis 2 is more ancient. The, the story of Adam and Eve is a more ancient story. So scripture scholars would say that that account, which is called the Yahwist account, it's called the Yahwist account because in Hebrew, the word Yahweh is used for God. And is, it's the more ancient and also anthropomorphic which means that God is sort of described in human terms, right? So God forms man from the dust and breathes into his nostrils, the breath of life. And which kind of is this image, <clears throat> right? Of a very personal God. Genesis one is more recent and it's more mature, both with, with regard to the image of God and in the formulation of the essential truths about man. And, and so when we look at Genesis 1, it doesn't speak of man's likeness to creation, but of his likeness to God, which is an elementary kind of thing. But it's also a really important point to make in the modern world, because sometimes people justify all kinds of behaviors based on what happens in the animal kingdom. You know, like, like I've heard people and, and they'll say, well, like gorillas, like they have multiple partners. And so like, we should have multiple partners, like, but I'm not a gorilla, you know, or like the male penguin sits on the egg and therefore like, and they'll use that to talk about things. And, but what we believe is that we're completely different from the created world. And there's this experience of being created in likeness to God. John Paul II says the creator seems to halt before calling man to existence as if he entered back into himself to make a decision. Let us make man in our image, in our likeness. So I'm just going to read from Genesis 1 because the rhythm of Genesis 1 is it's kind of interesting. So Genesis 1:3, then God said, Let there be light, and there was light. God saw how good the light was. God then separated light from the darkness. He called the light day and the darkness he called night. Thus evening came and morning followed the first day. Then God said, let there be a dome in the midst of the waters to separate one body of water from the other. And so it happened. Verse nine, then God said, let the water under the sky be gathered into a single basin so that the dry land may appear. And so it happened. Verse 11, then God said, let the earth bring forth vegetation, every kind of plant that bears seed and every kind of fruit tree on earth that bears fruit with its seed in it. And so it happened. Verse 14, then God said, let there be lights in the dome of the sky to separate day from night. Let them mark the fixed times, the days and the years and serve as luminaries in the dome of the sky to shed light upon the earth. And so it happened. Verse 20, then God said, let the water team with an abundance of living creatures and on the earth, let birds fly beneath the dome of the sky. And so it happened. Then God said, let the earth bring forth all kinds of living creatures, cattle, creeping things and wild things of all kinds. And so it happened. And so, so the, the kind of format is then God said, and so it happened. And <clears throat> And then we hear this starting in verse 26. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness. Let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, the birds of the air, the cattle, and over all the wild animals and all the creatures that crawl on the ground. God created man in his image. In the divine image, he created him. 
male and female, he created them. God blessed them, saying to them, be fertile and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it, have dominion over the fish of the sea, the birds of the air, and all the living things that move on the earth. God also said, see, I give you every seed-bearing plant over all the earth and every tree that has seed-bearing fruit on it to be your food. And to all the animals of the land, all the birds of the air, and all the living creatures that crawl on the ground, I give all the green plants for food. And so it happened. God looked at everything he had made and found it very good. Evening came and morning followed the sixth day. And so there's this extended narrative when God creates man. And, and also there's, there's sort of a language that's used in the other five days of creation, right? God said, let us do this. And we did this. But then let us create man in our image after our likeness. And, and that word create is reserved for man. And so man is defined by his likeness to God, right? We're defined by our likeness to God. And, and so it's what makes us different from the rest of the world. And, and as Christians too, like there are certain things that, that should make us different from the rest of the world. One of my favorite writings from the fathers of the church is the anonymous letter to Diognetus, it's called. And, and in that anonymous letter to Diognetus, it says, like, like Christians live in the world as if it's not their own country. They live in their own land as if it's not their country. They live as foreigners in their own place. They don't do the things other people's do. You know, they share their meals, but not their wives. They don't expose their children. Like we just live differently, right? We just live differently. And, and I think that's a point that, that we have to remember, especially like as our culture becomes more and more unchristian, that Christians have always lived differently than the rest of the world. And so it really doesn't bother my heart if there's a bunch of people who believe something crazy or something totally different than me because we've always lived differently <clears throat> and, and we just don't do that. You know, like we just don't do that. And, and there are certain things that we just like don't do. And, and I think that would, it could be an effective way like when parents are talking to their children about things. I know parents like they have these signs in their bathroom that says, Carrie's wash their feet, like my brother, my sister-in-law had her parents had this sign in their bathroom. Like these are the things that our family does. We wash our feet because they're trying to train their little kid to make sure he took a shower properly. And, um, but there's just certain things that we don't do. And because like we believe that we're created for more and, and we believe that there's more and we believe that like our bodies are holy and we believe that marriage is holy and we believe that marriage is forever. And, um, and all of those beliefs and the belief that we're created in the image of God has consequences. So the first account is concise. It's free from any trace of subjectivism. It contains only the objective fact and defines the objective reality, both when it speaks about the creation of the human being, male and female, and the image of God. And when it adds the later, a little later, the words of the first blessing. So, so again, in that first chapter or the first chapter of Genesis, it just simply says like God created man in his image and likeness. And, and it's free of subjectivism, which means it's not talking about the experience of that. It says we're creating the image of God. We're more like God than the world. And the words of that first blessing are, it was very good. And John Paul II, like he points out the fact that being and good are convertible terms right? To exist is to be good. And the fact that God created and we exist is good. And, and I think that's a really important point, right? That it's good that we exist, right? It's good that we exist. And because so often, um, there are many, many, many people in the world who don't believe it's good that they exist or we feel like a burden, Right? Even in the small ways, we can feel like a burden, right? Like if you ever needed something, but you don't want to be a burden, so you don't ask, right? Like I'm the only one, I'm sure. <laughs> you know, like I, like I talk to people and they're just like, well, I don't want to be a burden, Father. Um, you know, and like, that's kind of my favorite thing with spiritual directions. So like I live for people who are like, Father, I want to come and talk to you because like I'm, I want to grow with my spiritual life. I'm like, yes, I get to be a priest today. But then so many times people will say like, well, I don't want to bother you because I know you're really busy. 
and like I'm not too busy for that. Um, Genesis 2 is going to move to something more subjective. So one can say that, that this depth in Genesis 2 is above all subjective in nature and thus in some way psychological. And so, so Genesis 2 is going to kind of blow up this idea of what it means to be created male and female and, and look at it kind of from the inside. And, and it really answers the question, what is it like to be created in the image of God? Or what is it like to be created, male and female? In that quote from our Lord, this is why a man leaves his father and mother and it joins his wife. Um, or don't you know, in the beginning, God created them male and female. For this reason, a man leaves his father and mother and joins his wife. So it moves from the first account to the second. And, and the words our Lord uses directly describe that unity and indissolubility of marriage. And Christ links to the beginning, but leads to the boundary. And so, so when our Lord says this, he's, he's quoting back way back to the beginning. And, and, but it makes reference to this boundary experience. So the boundary experience is like at the fall when we enter into that state of historical sinfulness. And so John Paul II will spend a lot of time kind of talking about that and how like we know what it's like to live in this state of historical sinfulness. And, and when he's answering the Pharisees, he's answering them in this context that Moses allowed divorce because of the hardness of your hearts. But from the beginning, it was not so. And, and so he's always gonna like be reaching back to the way we were created to be from the beginning. So Genesis 2, 24 and 25 is where it says, this is why a man leaves his father and mother and clings to his wife and the two become one body. And then 25, the man and his wife were both naked, yet they felt no shame. And then it leads to that boundary, which happens in Genesis 3 and the fall of man. So we see here the distinction between that original innocence and the state of man's sinfulness, or we can call it the state of integral nature and fallen nature. This state where we lived in perfect harmony, and then this state where we're kind of like a mess inside. Christ's words also point to the redemption of the body. So Christ's response points us back beyond the boundary running in Genesis between that state of original innocence and the state of sinfulness. And his words allow us to find an essential continuity in man and a link between these two different states or dimensions of the human being. And so as, as our Lord points back to the beginning, it's implied that it's going to be possible for us to live that way again. And, and so it's, it's implied that we don't have to live in this state of historical sinfulness anymore. We don't have to live in our distortions anymore. We don't have to live with hardness of heart anymore. That, that he came to elevate everything. And, and so as he, as he points back, he's also pointing out the redemption of the body. And when we reflect on kind of where we're at in our sinfulness, or where the Pharisees were at in their sinfulness. The state of sin is part of historical man on that timeline, but it plunges its roots deeply into its theological prehistory, which basically means like that, that when we see what's distorted, right? It's always the flip side of the way God created us to be. And, and we have to go back and reflect more deeply on the way we were created to be from the beginning. And so every point of our historical sinfulness has to be explained with reference to original holiness. Like whenever we talk about like things that are distorted, we do so in reference to the state of original innocence. We have to refer back to like, okay, how are we supposed to be from the beginning? You know, and we do that with lots of things in our life. Like I have this image in my head right now of like, you know, like your car, like when your car's not running properly, you know, it's not running properly because you can refer back to like when it used to run properly. 
you know, like when I shut my car down and it's like, <sighs> like it didn't always do that. And so with our lives too, and in our own hearts too, there's, there's this reference back to the way that God created us to be from the beginning. And even as we identify with historical sinfulness, we also participate in the history of redemption. Like we're all in process, right? We're all in process. And, and all of us, like when, when we reflect on these things and we talk about like the effects of sin and that we might be sitting in our chairs going like, yeah, that's exactly what I do. Or that's exactly how I am. Or like, I know what that's like. Um, but we're always in participating in the history of redemption, right? Like we're always on the way to becoming something more. St. Paul says we groan inwardly while we wait for the redemption of our bodies, that, that we're, there's something exciting about the fact that, that it's possible to grow in holiness and, and that it's possible that whatever was distorted in our life can be redeemed. And, and whatever was wounded can be healed. And that's really like that journey that, that I started with. Like, that's what it's like to be, you know, that person with a wounded and troubled love that somebody walks with towards the lighthouse. In the interpretation of the revelation about man and above all about the body, we must, for understandable reasons, appeal to experience because bodily man is perceived by us above all in experience. And, and so as we go back and reflect on these realities and, and reflect on what it means to be a human person, we have to appeal to experience. And, and so he's going to talk about three original experiences and, and they're kind of core experiences that all of us have. And they're core experiences that are highlighted in Genesis that speak to what it means to be created in the image and likeness of God. And the, the first of those experiences is original solitude. And that's taken from this line. It's not good for the man to be alone. And that refers to man as such, not only to the male, that, I, like I can tell, when John Paul II wrote this, it seems that he was contending with a lot of feminism, um, because he constantly, like, makes this point. Like, every time we, he talks to man, he always, like, he's, he's sure to write down, like, this refers to man as such, not just to the male. Um, and solitude has two meanings. So one derives from our very nature and the second from the relationship between male and female. And so, so solitude, like it really doesn't mean loneliness. Sometimes it's, it's translated as original loneliness. And so loneliness is like when I'm sitting around the rectory on a Sunday watching my football team lose and I'm by myself and I'm like, I wish I had a friend and I call Father Gravy, but he's too busy. And I'm just like, Ugh. Right, that's loneliness. <laughs> Solitude is, it, it's when we're alone with someone, right? It means being alone with the Lord. And so in Adam's loneliness, he discovers his identity. He discovers that he's superior to the other creatures. So he experiences this solitude as he's is moving about in the world. And what he discovers is that he's not like anything in the world, right? He's not like anything in the world. And, and so you can go through the entire hierarchy of being and like there might be like a rock and he realizes, well, I'm not like the rock. And there might be a tree and he realizes I'm not like the tree. <laughs> and then like the animals come and he realizes I'm not like the animals. And, and there's no other creature in the world that's like him. And the logical conclusion that he comes to is that he must be like God because he's not like anything else in the world. And there's nothing in the world that reflects back to him who he is. 
And so he's superior to the other creatures. And so he finds himself before God in search of his identity, John Paul II says. And, and so, and we all have had the experience of being in search of our identity and, and like, who am I like, right? Like, who do I relate to? Um, like you can think about like when you go to coffee and rolls and who do you sit by? And when you walk in the room and you're like, oh, thank God they're here. And you go sit with those people. When I go to pre-study day, I'm like, thank God he's there. And I'm going to go hang out with him. And, and there like, are certain people that we identify with. I remember, I always remember this time, my youngest sister, um, Katie, she was, she was probably like three at the time. And she's staring up at me for a while. And she goes, I'm like you. And I was like, what? Like, we both have blue eyes. So, so she's sort of looking around the world and experiencing the world. And she notices that everybody else has brown eyes in our family, except for me. And then she's like, I'm like you. And, and we all have a desire right, to find our identity, like to identify it with, to find something else that's like us or someone else that's like us. And so this experience of original solitude, it takes place like after God creates Adam and he puts him in the garden and he gives him authority over the garden. And yet there's, there's nothing in the created world that's like him. And, and so what he discovers is that he's like God. He's alone because he's different from the world. In that experience, what makes him different from the world is he has these two things, which is self-consciousness and self-determination. So, so he has free will, which is self-determination. And self-consciousness is like reason. Like he's aware of the fact that he exists. He's aware of the fact that he exists. Like, do you remember when you were like a teenager and we had like that moment where you realized that you were thinking, like you ever been thinking about the fact that you're thinking it's, it's like a stage we get to in human development. Sometimes I said teenagers and they're just like, I haven't got there yet. I don't even know what you're talking about father. Right. But like, we think about the fact that we're thinking it's that capacity for self-reflection Sometimes it's called transcendence, which means that we have, human beings have the capacity to go outside of themselves and reflect on themselves. We have the capacity to think about like, how do other people perceive me? Um, when we're in a relationship with people, it sort of forces us to go outside of ourselves and reflect on ourselves. And, and so those are those two things that traditionally we've always said, like that's what makes a human person a person is that they have reason and free will. <laughs> But there's this other aspect that Adam is a subject of the covenant and a partner of the absolute. God blessed him and said to him, be fertile and multiply and fill the earth. That like there's this covenant between Adam and God. And really kind of that first covenant relationship revolved around, you're free to eat from any of the fruit of the trees of the garden, except for the fruit from the tree of knowledge of good and evil. Don't eat it or touch it or you'll die. And, and so there's this agreement between Adam and God. And he's a partner of the absolute, which means that he's in relationship with the Lord. And, and his first experience is being in relationship with the Lord. And, and that means he's in relationship as a son. And he's set into a unique, exclusive, and unrepeatable relationship with God himself. And, and those are three words that I think are so important to repeat over and over and over and over and over again. Right? That that all of us are set into a unique, exclusive, and unrepeatable relationship with God. And I think that's the desire on so many people's hearts is that they be in a unique, exclusive, and unrepeatable relationship. And, and so many people in our times, like, like they, they want to be affirmed and they want to be accepted for who they are and they want to, to belong somewhere. And, and we don't always like say that the first thing is like that, like you're in this relationship with God. He created you to be that way. Sometimes we think like God loves me just because he has to, which isn't unique, exclusive, and unrepeatable. 
right? Like God loves everybody. He only loves me because I just happen to be part of the everybody. You know, like I've probably told this story before. There's this, this kid is several years ago. He's, he's probably like 17 at the time. And he came to see me because his grandma made him, which always goes well, by the way, <laughs> never goes well. So, so he comes in to see me. He's got his hat all pulled down, you know, and he's sitting there. And I said, you don't want to be here, do you? I don't care. Um, what do you want to talk about? Huh? What do you want to talk about? So we just talked about anything. We talked about like, I don't know, the fight he got in last week or getting in trouble with grandma's house or like what's going on at school or what's going on at work. And so I met with him for a couple months and then I was, then I, I, I realized I probably should talk about Jesus sometime. And, uh, and so, so I'm talking to him one day and I said, you know, God loves you, right? Yeah, he loves everybody. Huh? No, you know, he loves you like your name. Yeah. Father, he loves everybody. Like it doesn't count because he loves everybody. And I'm just part of the everybody. And, and then I kind of like drove a little deeper and I was just like, no, he loves you. He loves you. He loves you when you were doing drugs last year. He loved you when you punched your hole in the wall at grandma's house. He loved you when you got drunk last week. He loves you. And then, and then he was just kind of like, uh, I gotta go. <laughs> It's funny, like three months later, he's on my schedule and I was having one of those days, like sometimes you have days like where you have to be a priest, but you don't necessarily want to be a priest. I don't know. There are days where you like have to be a mom, but you don't want to be a mom. It only happens to priests, I'm sure. And so, so like I was, it's like a busy day. There's all this kind of things going on and plot my calendar or, and I'm like, oh, he's on my calendar. Okay, I want to be a priest. So like I go to the office and I go in and there's him and two other kids and grandma. And I'm like, what the heck they do? Start a drug ring. <laughs> so he comes into my office and he's just like, father, these are my friends. And uh, I went to mass last week and I went to confession. I'm going to go to mass this week. And these are my friends and they want to talk to you. Talk. Like what happened? Probably, I think what happened was he started to believe that was true. And then he wanted to go tell everybody about it. But it took saying it over and 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 over again. And and that story, like like he's he's somebody I hope like just floats into my life again at some point down the road. You know, like like sometimes stories like I wish they were like, and then he went to the seminary, right? Like that's not how the story goes. But there was this moment where, like, he knew something was true. And, and those are, like, moments in our own lives. Like, 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 we all need to have that moment where we realize that's true about us. And, and that there's something really personal there. You know, I said to the high school kids on Wednesday, like, when our Lord looks at a field, he doesn't see the field. He sees every blade of grass in the field, right? Which means he sees you. So based on his body, he could have determined that he was similar to other living beings. Rather, he reached the conviction that he was alone. So, so again, like Adam, based on his body, he could have said, I'm just like all the other living creatures. Like I have similar body parts to orangutans and I have similar, like, like I kind of walk like this and like I eat food, like they eat food. Like he could have come to that conclusion, but instead he comes to the conviction that he's alone which means he realizes that he's more like God than the world. And, and those aspects of self-consciousness and self-determination are the things that make him unique from the rest of the world. It's only man that can rule the earth and cultivate and transform it according to his own needs. He's the only one who has dominion over the world around him. So consciousness of the body seems to be identical in this case with the discovery of the complexity of one's own structure, which in the end, based on a philosophical anthropology, consists in the relation between soul and body. So, so as he's aware of his body, right, it's, 
John Paul II says that's identical with the discovery of the complexity of his structure. It's, it's identical with the discovery that he's a body soul composite, that there's something that makes him different from the rest of creation. And, and that calls to mind this line from Genesis 2, 7, the Lord God formed man with dust of the ground and blew into his nostrils, the breath of life. And man became a living being, right? And man became a living being. And, and the fact that we're a body soul composite is it's another, it's, it's kind of a point that I think when I was being catechized, we were taught that and we all just accepted it. But in the modern world, it's something that is very much like up for debate. Like, like there's a belief that people hold that like my soul is just like a renter in my body. And, and so like my body doesn't really matter or people think, I, I mean, I thought this in my twenties, like I'm only sinning with my body, but my soul could be holy. And, or like my body's insignificant or it doesn't matter. Or people can think that they're like in the wrong body and, and there's an alienation from our body. And that manifests in all kinds of different like body dysmorphias that people experience. Um, the ways that we like use our body to change our mood. And we do that in lots of ways. Like every time I eat three pounds of pistachios, I'm using my body to change my mood. Because um, I just want to feel really full right now. Um, and then, you know, there's, there's various other ways that people do that. Like the phenomenon of cutting the solitary sins that people commit, like masturbation, like that's all like a way of manipulating our body to try to change something that's deeper. And, and so part of the truth about man that, that needs to be reflected on and revisited is the fact that we're a body soul composite. And, and that there's something of divinity that was breathed into us from the time we were created. And the structure of the body is such that it permits him to be the author of genuinely human activity, that, that we can make human choices, that we can act in freedom. In this activity, the body expresses the person. It is thus... In all its materiality, he formed man with the dust of the ground, penetrable and transparent, as it were, in such a way as to make it clear who man is and who he ought to be, thanks to the structure of his consciousness and self-determination. And, and so a couple of, of points there, that the body expresses the person, right? means that we're a body-soul composite, and that our bodies are really important. And... It's through our bodies that we express who we are. And, and there's simple ways that we can talk about that, like body language ways. Um, and the materiality of our body allows us to be these two things, penetrable and transparent, right? Penetrable means that we can be affected by others. Right? We can be affected by others. Like when I'm around somebody who's sad, I start to feel sad. If I'm around somebody with a lot of joy, I might feel joyful. I have the capacity of carrying somebody else's pain. And sometimes I feel that in my body. And, and that's what it means to be punishable. We can be affected by other people in relation. And transparent means that like our bodies can express who we are. And, and so the more transparent we are, then people actually can see if we're joyful or not joyful, if we're having a bad day or whatever it is, you know, in the state of historical sinfulness, we learn not to be penetrable and transparent, right? Like we learn to be hard of heart. Hardness of heart means I'm not penetrable. Not being transparent, like living in facade all the time. So like I act like I'm okay when I'm not okay. And uh, like I grew up in a family system where there's lots of facade and, and it's kind of like, I hate facade. And it was probably like, I don't know. It was when I got back from Rome, I remember internally making this decision that I'm going to strive to be as transparent as possible. And so, so like if I'm struggling, people are probably going to see that I'm struggling with something. If I'm carrying a lot, people are going to see that I'm carrying a lot. And, uh, 
and and so I then I have to like announce that sometimes like when I have spiritual directions with people and I might be like carrying some really hard thing that I just like went through and I'm like okay I just like had a really hard meeting it's not you don't worry but but people can see that and uh and it was sort of a risk that if I always live in a transparent way and people can see that I'm struggling they're also going to know that I'm actually joyful when I'm joyful and and there will be no question that like something happens and uh it took about 10 years but i think it paid off <laughs> and um and it's totally worth it right it was totally worth it and and i'm not prescribing that like everybody has to live their life that way i just like the way my life is i like i can't live a different way like if i live in facade i'll be a complete mess um but from the beginning there wasn't any worry about that from the beginning everybody was always like completely transparent so when you saw somebody you saw them and and we also had that capacity right of being affected by others and there was no hardness of heart place before the tree of knowledge of good and evil there was a question of the alternative between death and immortality and and so leading up to that boundary experience leading up to the fall um John Paul II says, like, when facing the tree of knowledge of good and evil, it brings about a question that, like, I can either live forever or I'm going to die, right? Which also reveals the dependence that we have and the penetrability of our bodies and the frailty that we have. The words you shall die signify that there's dependence in existing so that they show man as a limited being and by his nature susceptible to non-existence. Right? The fact that we have, that we can die means that there's dependence in existing. And so from the beginning, there was dependence in existing and that's, there's nothing wrong with that. We live in a world where dependence is seen as a weakness or dependence is seen as a bad thing. You know, like, I don't want to give up my dependence. Um, I don't want to be a burden on people. There's a book by Alastair McIntyre called Dependent Rational Animals, where he talks about how, like, the very nature of being a human is that we're dependent and, and that we need other people. And when we're not dependent on people, we become dependent on things. <laughs> like, we, we become dependent on things. And, and I think we've all experienced that in some way. It doesn't mean we're addicted, but it just means, like, oh, yeah, like when I'm really like stressed out, like I'm dependent on like zoning out on TV or eating chocolate or eating cookies, or I'm gonna eat all the cookies. Um, I ate all the Halloween candy on Halloween. And I had a migraine on Tuesday. Um, and, and so, but really what we're called to be dependent on is God. And, and there's a good in being dependent on him. And we are at 8.05. And so I'm going to cut this first class right there. So I'm going to stop sharing and just see if anybody has any questions on anything I talked about today. This is when everybody in the room looks at their feet. I'm going to look at the chat. So somebody asked, what do you do when somebody says the beginning doesn't matter anymore? And so I suppose like, then they're free to say it doesn't matter anymore, I suppose. <laughs> because you're really asking, that's like an apologetic kind of a question, right? Like, well, if I say like from the beginning, it was not so, that's not really how God created us to live. Then they'll be like, well, I don't really think that matters. Okay, well, like, do you want my opinion? Like, that's usually what I ask is, do you want to know what I think? And if they say no, well, then there's nothing that we can do. And, and so sometimes we forget to ask that question, especially when we're having like deep discussions or religious discussions. We're in a hurry to like tell them what we think. And we probably should just ask like, do you want to know what I think? 
And if they say no, well then, okay, then you don't want to be in a relationship with me. And I just want to point out to you that you think I'm the judgmental one, but you don't want to know what I have to say. And uh, that was my favorite line when I was studying Italian at Middlebury in Vermont. Um, it was, I would always accuse like super liberal people of judging me. And uh, just because I was a priest, I was like, you're just judging me because I'm a priest. And then they'd be like, oh no, I'm not judging. And then they come by and like, we'd have like a really awesome conversation. Um, so it's just a little, it's a little tactic. What was the book again? The book is Man and Woman, He Created Them, A Theology of the Body. It was edited by Mikael Waldstein. So if anybody on Zoom, somebody, Dorothy asked that question. And are we meeting on Thanksgiving? No, we're not going to meet on Thanksgiving. I'm going to be at my brother's on Thanksgiving eating turkey, I hope. Um, so, so I'll figure that out. Um, I don't know that we'll meet on the 22nd of December either because it's really close to Christmas. So this might just be like five sessions and then we'll start again in January for anybody who's interested. Um, and I'm just going to continue to, to teach this throughout the year and post on YouTube and um, kind of see what happens from there. Any other questions in the room? Niente? Nobody ever asked questions? Kristen? Mark? Yeah. So, um, solitude is, that's the English word. So what would be, it's a Hebrew document. What would, would have been the Hebrew? For which? For the solitude. Because you, uh, you could explain solitude as two different yeah, I would have to. I would have to go back and look it up. Yeah, I'd have to go back and look it up. So, it's a good question. It's whatever is translated it's, as alone. That's right, because what we're reading is a translation. Yeah. Right, of the, the original, and so I'm interested to go back. Yeah. Yeah, the only Hebrew I could tell you was like Isha and Isha, and you probably heard that all the time, and Yahweh and Elohim. Good. All right, so we'll just pray. It's 8.09, and, uh, and then we'll see you all next week, and uh, that also gave me an idea of how many slides I can get through. I also cut like my usual 20-minute introduction of myself, but that's okay. Most of you in the room have heard it. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, of the Holy Spirit, amen. Lord Jesus, we thank you for this opportunity just to, to gather in community and also to um, just reflect more deeply on what it means to be created in your image and in your likeness. I ask you to continue to just move our hearts with curiosity and openness to whatever it is that you desire to reveal to us. We pray especially for all those who, who struggle, who feel alienated, who feel cast out. That they may come to know your love and that they are loved in a unique, exclusive, and unrepeatable way. And through the intercession of the Blessed Virgin Mary, St. Joseph, and all the saints, may Almighty God bless you, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen.